So the, um, the board had asked us at some point to teach together once every quarter. And so this is our once a quarter teaching together. Although sometimes we're uh, illicit and we teach together more than once in a quarter. But <laughs> we've been together long enough so it's okay if, we, if we're illicit together. So, um, and some people may know, some people may not. Pam and I are married, we're both Buddhist teachers. Pam's taught here for many years as well. And Pam is also um, a teacher in the Zen lineage as well as the insight meditation lineage. And so when we were thinking about teaching together, we've done this once before, we had some fun, and we had some complaints, of course, about how we did it to each other. And so we <laughs> talked uh, more about how we would like to do it, and so we're experimenting again. And we picked a quote we would like to work off of or teach from, which is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is uh, one of the uh, longest tenured Western monks that I know, like 50 years or something like that. He's been a monk, really good guy. We've had him here at SFI uh, a few times and he was always a lot of fun to have here and very interesting. And uh, I know I've told this story before that I watched uh, the Super Bowl with him one time because uh, he was staying, it was a World Series, okay, it was a World Series, same thing. So we were watching the World Series, and I, meaning the Giants were in the World Series. I said, I said, Venerable, excuse me, but uh, you can join me if you wish, but I'm going to watch the World Series. And I thought he wouldn't want to. He said, oh, okay, I'll watch the World Series. And he sat down, and we watched, and we watched them win the World Series. And he hadn't watched a baseball game in like 40 years. And, and you know, television's not exactly his thing in the monastery. And so, um, and, he, and he sat there and right at the end he was watching and they were, everybody kind of goes crazy when you win the World Series or the Super Bowl or anything like that. And so he sat there and he looked, he said, and he was like, wow, that's really impressive grown people jumping up and down. <laughs> and really, he, you know, he hadn't seen that kind of uh, secular uh, 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 enjoyment or pleasure. Anyhow, so Bhikkhu Bodhi, he said this, he said, the essence of the Buddhist, the Buddha's teaching can be summed up in two principles. The essence of the Buddha's teaching can be summed up in two principles the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. The first, the Four Noble Truths, covers the side of doctrine, and the primary response to it elicits understanding. The second, the Eight Noble Eightfold Path, covers the side of discipline, and in its broadest sense of the word, the primary response to it calls for practice. Right, And so we thought we would talk about these two principles of both understanding and practice and what it means to practice together because we kind of practice together because we've been together for 27 or 28 years now and, and it's a practice 
right? Which any of you who've been in a couple ever, you know it's a practice, right? I mean, if, if it's not, tell me and help educate me, but at least for me, it's a practice. And um, so we were sitting around and, you know, and Pam like say, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know, let's see what happens when we get up here. And she said, no, 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 what do you want to do? Because, you know, I want a little clarity about what we're going to do. So I'll, I'll just read some of my bullet points, and then we'll go from there. My first bullet point is practice is good. <laughs> right? And what that means is that... Uh, oh, more here. Yes. Thank you. Um, what that means is that it's both good to practice, but practice itself is good. That practice does something more than whatever we think we want it to do. That it actually changes our reality by giving ourselves to a practice or a discipline uh, that then begins to reveal the Dharma to us through our own direct, immediate, experiential life. Through, through our experience itself. And for me, that's key to what the Buddha taught. He wasn't teaching so much theory. He was using theory, or doctrine, as, as uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi said, in order to point us at the reality that's sitting in each seat here, and the potential for that reality to discover its true nature, or its Buddha nature, or its freedom, or its divinity, whatever language you want to use to point at what it means to wake up and discover the human potential. And so for me, practice is good. And then, and of course, you can please jump in whenever you want. So I know I shouldn't have said that too no, soon. Go ahead, but no. <laughs> no, no, no. And the second bullet point I have here is practice is not perfect. Right? And that's a really important part of practice, is it's not about doing it perfectly. And it's a beautiful thing about Buddhism, is you can't do it perfectly. Right? Everybody understand that? Is that clear? Like, you know, was your meditation perfect tonight? Right? I mean, actually, it probably was, but it was perfectly imperfect, which is more from... Uh, uh, Pam's tradition, she would say that. <laughs> and then we were, as we were talking about it, we talked about the fact that we have different practices, even though we've done the same practice, even the same practice we do differently. And so we thought we would elucidate a little more about that. And we also do different practices, right? Because she's one of those Zen people, and I'm not one of those Zen people, even though I love Zen. And it's had a big impact in my life, but I've never practiced Zen. And then the last thing I said was, it's important, whatever, pra and also we both have done, and I do and teach, practices that are not just Buddhist. I'm, I'm a teacher in Buddhism and have been for, 30-some years, but also I'm a diamond approach teacher, which isn't a Buddhist, technically it's not a Buddhist teaching, right? And so I've done other practices, 
and we were talking about how people do different practices, and I said it's important to learn how practice is good, different practices are good, it's important to learn how to metabolize one's practice, whatever the practice is. What does that mean? Right, and that's what Pam said. What does that mean? <laughs> it, it means how do we live the practice? How to metabolize means how do we digest it so it's a living part of our reality and that we can function from the practice itself. We can function from what the practice points to and begins to wake up in us. And that's what I mean by metabolize. It means a certain kind of um, uh, kinesthetic digestion of the understanding. Please. So um, I agree with all of that. And I just want to do a little call out for the other piece that Bhikkhu Bodhi is pointing to, oh, yeah, which is the, so there's the, what is it, the principles, the principle and the, the two, practice. Two principles, the two and then the one principle's understanding. Understanding. So, so for me, the thing that, one of the things that I love about Buddhism is that it offers these two dimensions. And one dimension is a kind of what I would describe for myself as a perspective. It's a point of view. It's a lens through which we see the world. It's a way of paying attention in our lives. And that first perspective is uh, described in this quote as the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths in their simplified version is often, they're often referred to as uh, the perspective of suffering and the end of suffering. Is really the heart of what is important in Buddhism. So what's, what's important is not getting what you want. What's important is be, not being rich or famous or whatever that is. Now those things might happen and that's fine, but that's not the orientation. The orientation of Buddhist practice is about what does it mean to be a human being dropped into a human body with a limited span of life on this living planet? And how do we make sense of both the truth that there's difficulty for us as human beings? It's kind of obvious especially these days, but it's always been obvious, even 2,600 years ago, that that's true, and there is this possibility that's pointed to of liberation, of enlightenment, of freedom, you know, whatever it is that that means. So there's a potential for us as human beings that Buddhist, Buddhist practice supports. So these two pieces, I think, are really interesting in the ways that they intersect. Because for those of you who know the, the lists, the Four Noble Truths are the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility of freedom from suffering. The Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Noble Path. 
If you go to the Eightfold Noble Path, the first step on the Eightfold Noble Path is what's called wise or right, right as in uh, upright. And brings you in harmony with yeah, right. To write, like as in writing. We were, we were, I was uh, sitting in the marina over the weekend and watching sailboats. And sailboats are always, you know, turning and going like this, but so it's writing like you're writing a sailboat. Right? You're coming into balance all the time. So write not as in right wrong. So right or, or wise view is that perspective. That's at the, I think of it as kind of the whole of the Eightfold Path begins with taking a particular view, paying attention to life in a particular way, and then all the rest of the path is about practice, is about, it would be my language, I think, of what Eugene was saying about metabolizing. So it's one thing to have a view or a perspective, but how do we get that into our bones? How do we get that into our breath? How do we get that into our interactions? Whether we're having breakfast or driving in increasingly trafficy San Francisco, or reading, you know, the la- the, the most recent terrible headline, you know, that we're reading in the paper. So we have a perspective, and then we have a practice in which which helps us learn how to engage with real life. Go ahead. So to add a little to what you're saying, first of all, about understanding itself, um, right view, what Pam said, is the first link in the Noble Eightfold Path, she called right view, is also translated as right understanding often. Mm -hmm. And I like that translation a lot because this is what the Buddha said. He said, this committed life, meaning when you give your life to the Dharma, to waking up, he said, this committed life is lived for the sake of seeing into things and understanding them. I mean, that's just a very, very clear, very a simple way to understand the whole teaching. And then, as Pam was saying, everything comes from that, about living it. Right? As we begin to see a number of things that we understand, and I think we agree on this, we'll see. But um, the, you know, that everything is impermanent, right? Everything is just coming and going. And our lives, there is nothing we can actually hold on to. And so coming into harmony, understanding that, coming into harmony with that, gives you a different perspective from which to live one's life, whether it's about right action or right speech or right livelihood or, or any of the components of the meditative path or right intention, like what one intends to do with one's life is based on how one sees things. Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> Um, so just for those who don't uh, know the steps of the Eightfold Path, you know, uh, by, by memory, 
um, the steps, they're, they're, the Eightfold Path is broken into what are called sort of these three baskets or dimensions. <coughs> and the first two, which are wise view or understanding and wise intention, those are considered the sort of wisdom component. And for me, again, when I think of wisdom, I'm thinking of it's a perspective. It's a way of seeing and a way of engaging. <coughs> the next three steps, which are wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood, are really about relationship. They're about how we're engaging, how we're practicing in the world. And the third component of the Eightfold Path is really about meditative practice. So this is wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And for me, I'll say one more piece, that this perspective that we take, this way of seeing and understanding the world, is filtered through all of these other dimensions. That's how it gets metabolized. It's one thing to have a view, and then it's another thing when that view starts to come through in your speech, in your action, in your livelihood. It's another thing entirely when you begin to practice meditation, and the meditation practice itself starts to reveal that truth, not as something out there that you read about or heard about or heard Eugene and I talk about, but as something that you, it's like Eugene was saying, the truth of impermanence. You can read about impermanence. You can have a self-reflective understanding that yes, things change. And in meditative experience, you can actually watch a moment arise and pass. It's a very intimate way of coming to understand this basic view of life itself. So the two dimensions of the view, the perspective, and the practice are kind of like a wheel, right? They turn round and round. The deeper our understanding, the deeper our practice, they feed off one another in that way. Yeah, no, and, and the piece that you're saying about the meditative component, which is the basket is technically called the samadhi basket, and it's uh, right effort, right mindfulness, right, um, uh, right samadhi, right concentration. It's not a great word. Right, um, uh, I don't like concentration. It's right unity with experience is both a meditative basket, but it's a med. The only thing I want to add on is it's also a, a something we can learn to uh, practice in every moment in our life, not just in seated meditation with our eyes shut. That it really starts to build certain muscles, like many of you know that I like to work out and I go to CrossFit and I work out and it's really good because I've got, actually got some muscles now. And, <laughs> and, but I've also done a lot of working out in meditation so that I have some muscles so I know something about how to be really present 
in a moment, even if I'm speaking or listening or interacting, and that there's some mindfulness about what's happening, not just with me, but with me and also with the people I'm with. Because remember, mindfulness is often always taught as being both internal and external mindfulness. And so, and then it's kind of unity that can happen with any moment of our life. Even moments we don't like, there can be a kind of unity so we have some freedom to how we're gonna respond to those things that we don't like. And I assure you there will be plenty of those for us to practice with. So I just wanted to add that piece about practice and yeah. So one of the things that we were talking about is that within this kind of framework or um, that we're describing here, these two elements, that um, we were discussing how uh, we have very different kinds of practices, partly because we've trained in different traditions and partly because we're different people. <laughs> that we have different tendencies, we have different strengths and weaknesses, we have different leanings. And it, at least for me, it seemed that it might be useful to say a little bit about how we are different in that way. Because I think it's one of the things that many people struggle with, is they have an idea of, oh, this is what practice is or should be or should look like. And actually, I think it's within this framework it has many, many, many different flavors for many, many, many different ones of us. And that there's really not so much of a right, wrong, good, bad. That there are many, many, many Dharma doors uh, that we can enter and through which we can, to use your language, metabolize uh, these principles and practices. Yeah. So how do you practice? <laughs> So Eugene was saying that um, you know my my practice is very much informed by uh, the first twelve years or so of my practice were in uh, Zen, and I came to practice um, through sometimes referred to as the Dukkha Dharma door. <laughs> so some people come to practice because it's Buddhism seems like a really interesting thing, or because they have had some expansive states of consciousness and they want to learn more. Uh, many of us, I think, come to Buddhist practice in particular because it seems to be offering both a path, a perspective, and a set of practices for helping. <laughs> and that was very much true for me. So I came in to practice uh, with a lot of suffering and really a kind of a lot of internal um, pain and chaos, I would say. And so for me, in those early days, the Zen practice, which is much more, has a lot of external form and structure. Someone was telling me earlier that they had just visited Tassajara for the first time and had gotten, like, every, kept doing everything wrong as part of the deal, right? Because that's how we learn, right? We're getting everything wrong, and as Eugene said earlier, it's okay, because it's practice, right? 
So for me, all of what to some people Can looks like. Can I add a little bit in here? Just let me just quick. finish this piece. <laughs> just that what looks to some people like rigidity and structure felt like support because it was really helpful. Go ahead. Well, I just want you to make sure people understand what what Pam's talking about. It's like when you're practicing in Zen in. It, like they like you have to put the certain foot through the door when you're going through the door and then you have to turn your butt and sit on the cushion a certain way don't turn the other way and sit on the cushion so it's and what's interesting is they don't teach people mindfulness in Zen at all what they do is they teach them the form and that's how people learn how to be mindful but if you just walk in like I did, I did everything totally wrong because I just was like, I'm going to sit whatever way I want, not the way they tell me to sit. I'm not good with people telling me what to do. Anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, so for me, one of the ways, and you can fill in on this, one of the ways that I found it was really different, but also complementary in a certain way, was that when I was sitting in Zen practice, there was a lot of external form, but the internal practice, called zazen, was wide open. There was basically, you put your body in a certain posture, and then you just be present with whatever's happening. So there's structure, but it's all sort of on the outside, and then the inside, right, you just get to be with. When I came to mindfulness practice, the outside was from my perspective, totally chaotic, but there was a lot of internal structure. There was a lot more instruction about how to meditate. So both traditions have them, they just are in different flavors. And I'll just say as a funny aside, that the first time I went to an insight meditation retreat coming right out of the monastery after I had met Eugene, we went down to a retreat at Yucca Valley, which is a giant hall, and um, I just remember saying to Eugene, like, no wonder you people close your eyes, because then you have your eyes cast down but open. No wonder you have people close your eyes because it's just a mess in here. Because everybody was like, had these little campsites where, where they had their thing and they had their chair and they had their water bottle and they had their blanket and they had their teddy bear and they had their thing. And I come from Zen where everybody is like, at least from the outside, looks exactly the same. You're wearing the same costume, you're sitting the same way. So um, it was a little bit of a culture shock in the show. <laughs> yeah, it was a cultural shock to have her at Inside <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's, a, it's an interesting because we've practiced a long time together and separately. And um, the structure in insight meditation that I grew up with was from Mahasi Sayadaw, who was one of Jack Cornfield's teachers and um, highly revered monastic. Um, and um, and so, like even today, we were talking, and I and we were talking about how it's different. I said, "Well, you never did noting practice." And she said, no, I never did that. And I knew she didn't. But I, I grew up on meditation, and the first thing I learned was you note everything. And I don't teach that anymore, and I don't practice that way anymore. But for many years, meaning you would, if you took a step, 
you would tie your mind to the direct experience. Step, step, step. You'd be saying it very quietly in the mind to tether the mind to the experience so that you were, you were developing concentration that way and you weren't leaving it wide open like her practice was. What you were doing is you were trying to learn how to bring body and mind together and so just one thing was happening because that's what develops and nurtures and matures what's called samadhi, which is, again, this unification of heart and mind and body. And, um, and, and it's the same even breathing. With each breath, you're going in, out, in, out. Very, very quiet. It's like a whisper in the mind. And you do that for everything 24 hours a day. And it starts to quiet everything else and things start to happen that are my kind of fun. So I like concentration a lot because there's a lot of um, cities or a lot of um, states of consciousness that arise that are extremely pleasurable. Um, they're called the, they're, they're levels of concentration, and then there's the jhanas, where the oneness is so strong that everything else disappears, and just you just become the breath, and or and and then it it just keeps going from there, and and it you know for at a certain part of my life that was my kind of fun in meditation. I love that. And, uh, and so I did that a lot. I learned a lot about it. I practiced the samadhi meditation very formally. And Pam never did anything like that. But her samadhi is also really good in a natural way. And so, but we had different ways of practicing I don't know if you had as much fun as I had, but you had good samadhi. Well, we were talking today that, that, I mean, again, I was practicing in a way in which there was really careful attention to the details of, like, posture in Zen, right? You put your hands this way, and you keep your thumbs this way, and you, as Eugene was saying, you bow this way and turn this way. So there's a lot of kind of concentration that's built in that way. But it's sometimes described that there are different kinds of concentration. There is what's called one-pointed concentration where you keep your mind on a single object, which was not what I practiced. What I practiced was something that's sometimes called kanika samadhi, which is that you're completely concentrated but with different objects arising and passing. So it's a different kind of concentration. So my experience early in my practice, largely because I was in a lot of physical pain and that was the object that I paid the most attention to, I also had some deep states of interesting consciousness, blissful, really, consciousness. But for me, it was excruciating because I found that I chased those states. And it was so painful to because sometimes they came and sometimes they didn't. You know, I didn't have any formal training in how to get there. I just sometimes would fall into them and sometimes not. And I found myself just chasing those states, which in a certain way was good because the fact that I had some of that at the beginning kept me going. Right? It was like, ooh, candy, you know. 
So, but then I got into the suffering of, as we know, grasp after anything, even spiritual states, it's miserable. And so then, I'm a little extreme, as you can hear in the practice, but then I swung to the other side and I was like, no concentration. I refuse to concentrate because the, the concentration had become so painful for me in a certain way. So we have a different relationship to concentration and to these states that come with concentration. So I've never done the kind of formal jhana practice that Eugene has done. And um, the, uh, we both got to the same place in different ways because I did, I could get to those states and those states were great and they would get more and more subtle. It was, it was, it was like you did less and less it was almost like they were doing you is what would start to happen. And they were totally blissful and great and wild what kind of things that could happen. It's, it's wild where consciousness can go, and I like that. But you always had to do something. And at some point, I just saw, oh, this is just dukkha. Even all the blissfulness that I had access to, it was still dukkha. And if you don't know, dukkha is the Buddhist word for suffering. It was still a kind of suffering because you had to do something and you could never keep it going forever, right? And so at some point, I quit. I wasn't as dramatic as, as Pam. I didn't say, oh, I quit concentrating. It just started to happen. And all I really started to love was just sitting down and doing nothing. And that became my practice for quite a while. And now it's more mixed. It's not like, oh, I do one thing or I do the other thing. Really, to be honest, at this point, I do whatever I want to do. And I'm very, and I'm really looking forward to going and sitting a long retreat right now. I've been, I've been struggling with my calendar to try and find when I can go sit for a month. And because uh, I just feel really ready to see, I want to see what the Dharma does to me now if I go sit for a month. And it's been quite a while since I've sat for a month. I've sat shorter retreats, but yeah. And we used to sit a month every year, you know, and that was always fun, especially because we didn't have to relate at all. And, <laughs> and it really is good for your relationship if you don't relate for a while. And then you really miss the person, and so you relate really well when you get back together. <laughs> I remember the first month that we sat at Spirit Rock. Um, Eugene had a yogi job. When you're on retreat, you have a job you do. And his job was um, cleaning the bathrooms. And I, having come from this very strict kind of Zen practice, um, I think that I was in the shower and somehow I looked out under and I saw Eugene's feet. And I thought, ooh, we're not supposed to have any communication or contact. And so I took my towel and wrapped it around me and went and stood inside the shower so that I would be hidden with the door locked, you know, hidden out of view. I was cowering in the shower, waiting for him to be done because I was so wanting to be so strict and not breaking the uh, rules. 
And of course, if I would have known she was there, I would have tried to break the rules. <laughs> but I didn't know. <laughs> no, that's actually not true. I should be honest. Now we were really good. We didn't ever communicate on retreat on those no month longs. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so I mean maybe that's a good place to, to break a little bit just in yeah, just yeah. in taking some, some questions or comments, but just <coughs> I hope that this gives you a little bit of flavor of you know, our our lives and paths have crisped and crossed many, many ways. And within the context of practice, um, there's there's many pathways. There's many doorways. There's many ways, ways. And ours have had similarities, and they've also been very different in many ways. Um, so I'm saying that in the spirit of um, hopefully some encouragement that in hearing this that you can feel a bit more confidence in whatever the flavor of practice is for you, what draws you, um, like that. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> Bullet point number one. <laughs> Practice is good. Yeah. So, yeah, and if you have any questions, comments, you agree with us, don't agree with us, please come up and speak to us. It's really fun when the Dharma comes alive in the room together. And then we'll play with that microphone together. <clears throat> come on up. And it's great if you say your name so we all keep getting to know each other. Hi, my name's Elise. Um, I'm going to kind of form my question while I'm up here, but I feel like I'm, I'm definitely an infant in practice, especially next to you guys. And I've absolutely touched into those amazing states of consciousness. And I do find myself gripping towards them. So there's this suffering that happens when I'm not in those states. And I'm, I guess I'm asking like some guidance of when I'm not there, like how do I deal with that? I'm still navigating that. Yeah. So one of the ways. Put it to the side of your face. Yeah, yeah, do that. One of the ways that I think that this kind of suffering can be very illuminating is by how clearly you see the difference between what we're calling a state of consciousness and how that's different from the wanting of the state of consciousness. And the wanting of it is where you feel the suffering. And there you are in the second noble truth right that there's suffering and there's a cause of suffering no matter what it is that we're grasping after there's suffering there that's for me sort of important point one the other thing that for me was one of the most pivotal turning points as i started to see how much i was suffering by grasping was that it was also, I was going in the wrong direction. <clears throat> like, the way in is never over there. The way in is always right here. So the more that I could allow myself to be right where I was, 
the more that I could drop in and drop through into something that was more, that was fuller and richer. As soon as there's that divide of, oh, the thing I want is over there, or the thing I want to get rid of, could be either side, then feel the suffering. Because there's the teaching. It's right there. You can leave it on. Um, I'll just add a little different uh, version of that here. This. Um, it's similar to what Pam's pointing at. Um, what does it mean to really allow the wanting? Because mm -hmm. the wanting's there. You know, you want something. And really allowing the wanting and getting intimate with wanting instead of judging it or trying to mm -hmm. jump over it or get rid of it or deny it, because it's here. And it becomes the doorway itself. Mm -hmm. And that's radical practice, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because uh, I, you know, I didn't try to stop wanting, but if I can be aware of the wanting, that's where the juice is. Because then I don't have to be bound to it. It's just wanting. And anybody here not want things? Right? That's like a normal thing to want. But can we be aware of it instead of just believing it? Does that make sense? And, yeah. and when I say be aware of it, I mean somatically, kinesthetically, energetically. What's here that's wanting? Thanks. I, I really relaxed in my body from both of your answers. So that means they were both really true for me. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Great. Really, this is from Ajahn Chah, who is Jack Cornfield's really main teacher. He said, proper effort is not to make the effort to make something particular happen. It is the effort to be aware and awake in each moment, the effort to make each activity of our day meditation, which is what I believe you were pointing at also. It's the same thing. Please. Hi, I'm Madison. Um, I wanted to <clears throat> thank you both for what you said because I've had exposure to Zen and many more years with the Vipassana. And I also rebelled against the people telling me, don't walk in this way, walk in this way, and all of that. But one of the most blissful moments I've ever had, and it reminded me of how much I missed it, was sitting in a black little square on Castro Street, just facing the wall like I was being punished or something. And I felt this amazing amount of of release um, in that. And I used to love just going in there with the six men and facing the wall and then, you know, leaving a little money and, and walking out. So I feel like both of the practices have some unique advantages. And I haven't been here for a really long time and I was sitting here and I felt that total bliss and emptiness that I used to feel here. I don't know whether it's partially the heat or whatever, but it was it was wonderful because to be in here without a sweater is the biggest gift. Um, but it was it was absolutely blissful, and I just wanted to thank you for mentioning those two things, and that it was just really neat just to be here and feel that. So I'm grateful. Thanks. Thank you. 
glad glad you're back. Hmm. <laughs> Please. Hello, my name's Lloyd. And this is a question about something that I think I overheard Eugene say maybe a few weeks ago. Um, did you, you mentioned something about some people who practice with their head and some people practice with their hearts. And that really resonated for me because I don't think I practice with my head, I think I practice with my heart. And um, so is there, so when, when you said that, are those sort of def two defined ways that people practice? And you can open up a book and say, practice with your head, practice with your heart. Uh, I, I would say it this way, actually, if we're going to talk about the different uh, centers that are available to us, there's the head center, the heart center, the belly center. Mm. And so some people lead with their bodies. Mm. And that's, how, that's where their practice first opens. Some people it's with their hearts. Some people it's with their minds. And they're all good, right? Um, and what's really interesting is if we practice for a while, meaning long enough, we start to see each center needs to open up. Not just one is right and one is wrong, or one is good and one's bad, but actually they're all part of what it means to wake up in a very full way as a full human being. We want, we want our mind, our, our, the head center, to open with awareness and clarity and uh, a certain kind of understanding and precision and things like that. We want the heart to open up with kindness and care and love and joy and, uh, and empathy and gratitude. And we want the belly center to open up with presence and steadfastness and hereness and realness and authenticity of being. And they're all important for us and they're part of what starts to wake up naturally as we practice, but also we can focus on them. You might want to say a little more about that. Oh. Well, let me just check, Lloyd, is that, did that answer for you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it surprises me for as long as I've, I've uh, been in this practice. That quite often I walk out and like I'll come home and my wife will say, well, what was that about? And I'll say, I have no idea. I can't tell you, but I know that I felt it in my heart. Um, I know that usually before I understand things, it feels like, it feels like I feel, I feel them. And so when he said that, I said, oh, you know, maybe it's not just dyslexia. Maybe I just do it in a different way. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah no, and good. can you say what it is? Do you have a sense of what it is you feel? What that is? Mm -hmm. Let me see. You mean like after the talk? Sure. Yeah, what you were just describing. Something happens for you. I'm yeah, just curious. Yeah, something happens for me. Um, and, and so like, 
in my day-to-day -day life, it's my heart that leads me, you know, so I, I, I don't do really brainy things. I like to work with children. I like to do things that, that but that, to me, that appeals to this part of me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not very good at debating about things. I don't seem to understand complex things that well at times, but I know that I have a really strong heart and I know that it's led me to many good places. So, so what I was asking is what is it that gets touched in you when you're here? Hmm. Something gets touched in your heart. So at the end, I feel like at the end of the talk, even if I don't, even if I couldn't explain it to my wife, I feel like like there's been growth within me. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I feel. I yeah. feel like I've become a little wiser. Uh-huh. Great. So it's like a heart wisdom. Heart wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really important what you're pointing to, which is that, you know, each of these is a Dharma door. And for some of us, we have, may have more access, as you're describing, through one than another. And um, as Eugene was saying, ultimately, as we continue to practice, it's useful to recognize that all three are here, all three are available, all three can be cultivated, and we don't have to fight ourselves. If the heart is the main door of access, use the heart. For some people, it's more about you know, clarity, and as you were saying, and precision, and understanding. That's the door of the door, okay. And for many people, it's in the body. You know, it may not even be a feeling. It may just be that you something happens. <laughs> you know, you sit meditation and you notice that there's an energetic, somatic, kinesthetic shift. That's good enough. And again, this is back to the point that there are many different ways. You know, in the in the uh, stories of the Buddha's community. It's described that the different monks and nuns both were kind of given these, in some ways, funny titles. Like this monk was the foremost in, you know, compassion, and this monk was the foremost in discipline, and this monk was the foremost in wisdom, and this monk was the foremost in magical powers, and this monk like that. And it didn't say this one was better than that one, mm -hmm. right? It's like instruments in an orchestra. There were all these different flavors, as you're describing. And the degree, just like appreciating our wanting, like we go in where we are, right? We go, we go with what's here. And we also stay aware that as we go in, in your case, like through the heart door, that a whole bunch of other things may continue to open from there. But you find your own way in. And there's more than one way. So, so when I heard Eugene say that, it made me feel really good. 
because I thought, oh, you know, because a lot of times I'll walk out and go, oh man, this is like school. I have no idea what they're talking about. Right. Okay, man. So I maybe, but I do. I but but it does come in, and I do, and it is worthwhile for me to be here. I don't have to walk out and feel like I didn't understand. Exactly. Exactly. I used to. I had a. I had a teacher who used to say, um, "This was a Zen teacher, and you never understand anything they're saying." <laughs> wow, well, they're just talking, and you use like no idea what they're talking about. And I remember going to him and complaining about this once, and he said, "Don't worry, I'm not really talking to your mind. I'm talking to your cells." <laughs> and that was a beautiful way to say it. So I hear that a little bit in your description. Wait, 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 Lord. Come on, I'm, I'm here too. Oh, <laughs> No, but uh, I think it's important because you keep pointing to your heart, but I keep hearing a body-centeredness that is part of who you are. And I know you a little bit, right, right. and you're very body-oriented right. in that way. And right. So, and you may not be aware of that center, but that center is functioning. Right, it's this one that then works. Well, no, <laughs> they all have their place. Watch out for criticizing any of it, because yeah. that's not helpful. Yeah, I don't think it's a criticism. I just think, you know, that's the way I was born, I think. Anyway, yeah. thank okay. you. You're, you're <laughs> Please, yeah. yeah. I'll pull it down so we can, yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> and it's good to start with your name. Oh, Sylvia. Well, uh, everything that you said and the people who asked or talked about what happens to them, it was very important for me because uh, I'm having problems to, to remember and now that I think about my life remembering, I never remembered very well. <laughs> but I was smart enough to be in the top of everything. Uh -huh. and, and, but I suffered because I couldn't like really say I remember, I learned that, or I re read that, or Nothing. I'm taking a class, like, I wanted to say how many different types of meditation I've been, I couldn't say all the names, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter, now <laughs> for me it's wonderful, mm -hmm. because even if I sit down and I don't have a perfect meditation, which happens so many times, mm -hmm. I don't get up and say, oh, I didn't meditate. It wasn't good for me. Sometimes my meditation is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And today was one of them. I was sitting there, and I think that my, it's, my mind went, went to the garage and got clean. <laughs> yeah. And I failed very well, and thank you very much. Wait, wait, I, I'm so glad you got to the garage. <laughs> and, uh, and, but uh, you're saying something that's very important because uh, so I don't remember so well these days right I lost a lot of memory and it's been very interesting because sometimes like even I'll come here and I know people and I can't remember people's names that's not my skill 
And so I'll say, sorry, I don't remember your name, you know, remind me. And I hope to learn that, but it, you know, very slow, that part of my muscle, right? But there's another level, it's like, I don't really care about that. I know that I recognize people or that I care about them and that I feel good to see them, whatever the hell their name is. And so there's something about uh, being with things the way they are, even memory, that is very, um, that is also a Dharma door, right? Well, I think um, as a closing note, that being with things as they are is the Dharma door. And what I hope, what I feel like we're trying to point to is that um, uh, things as they are are many, many, many ways. But in some way, the practice is always the same, which is being with. And there's no, if whether we're being with our heart or we're being with our body or we're being with our mind or we're being with our memory or our lack of memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something's agreeing. Um, that, that in some way the fundamental practice is the same, but it shows up in all these different flavors. Yeah. So let's just sit for a minute before we... Uh, Please sit in a very relaxed way, very relaxed. And just taking a moment to appreciate our good fortune that we have a time and means and place and support so that we could be here together tonight to study the Dharma, to investigate the Dharma, to sit and uh, learn about what is practice and what does it mean to really understand or to stand under reality and let reality wake us up. And appreciating our good fortune and offering our good fortune may go out in every direction, north, east, south, west, above, below. May that good fortune go out to every world, every being in every dimension of reality. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. The third noble truth, may all beings come to realize or live under the third noble truth of being free from suffering. And may we all awaken and begin to live, metabolize, and manifest the Eightfold Path of living a life of Dharma, of awakening so that we wake up with every moment of reality, whatever it may be. May all beings wake up in this way and discover their true nature, their Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.